The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online. It's good to see you uh, today. Glad to be in the house of the Lord. I, I noticed last week, man, I was, I was going through the Word, and I, I was like, man, I feel like things are rolling out pretty good here, and it just felt like, it felt like you guys were all stone-faced, man. <laughs> and it dawned on me when I sat down, I was like, oh, they, I can't see their faces, um, they're all covered up. So maybe if you're smiling or something, we got to invent another little kind of like maybe every once in a while, if you feel good, you just kind of go like that. And I'll be like, okay, yeah, there you go, man. That's good. Very good. Let's, let's try it. Everybody like try it. Oh, yeah, man. Uh, you, I'll, I'll do that enough and I'll cut the, I'll cut the sermon in half, okay? <laughs> okay, so if you have, the, if you have your Bibles today, um, turn to Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to the last um, book in the Old Testament, and uh, good, good stuff in the book of Zechariah. I've never taught through the book of Zechariah, and I've never actually even taught through um, verse by verse through the, the book of Revelation. The Lord has, he just hasn't given me the freedom to do that uh, to this point in, in my, my teaching ministry. I feel like I'm getting a little closer, and probably as we go through this, will probably be the closest I've ever gotten because as we look at the book of Zechariah, Zechariah is sort of the revelation of the Old Testament. Um, it's apocalyptic literature. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's just a type of, um, it's a genre that uses a lot of symbology, okay? And so it is the uh, most symbolic book in the Old Testament. And there's some other apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament. Daniel has uh, a, a little bit of, of apocalyptic literature. Ezekiel has some, but but for the most part, Zechariah, he is the guy um, that is heavy on the use of apocalyptic literature and um, his prophecy. And so when we look at Zechariah, he is a young guy. Um, he is a contemporary of Haggai, who we looked at uh, before we uh, got to this book. And Haggai was charged, he had a couple of chapters there, and he is charged, he's a prophet that is um, calling the people back uh, to an awakening as they go back and they're going to rebuild the temple. And so if you remember, um, Zechariah and Haggai and Zerubbabel are the leaders. There's a government leader, there's a religious leader, uh, and um, then there, there's Haggai that is serving as a prophetic uh, leader in the day. And, and the people have been released from captivity. So for 70 years... They've been in captivity in Babylon. And if we go back to like Habakkuk and the guys prior, so we got nine prophets leading up to the time we get to Haggai, and then we got Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Malachi. And so there's 12 total nine prophets. The first nine are before the exile. And so they're prophesying that if you don't repent, Israel, then judgment is going to fall on you. And all of the blessings that you've been experiencing are going to turn into curses, just like God said when He gave you the promised land and He gave you the law through Mo Moses and, and you took the promised land through Joshua's leadership. And Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve, but for, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, prior to saying that, he says, before you has laid a blessing or a curse. And basically, if you follow the Lord and you follow what He's asked you to do, you will be blessed and if you do not, then a curse will fall on you. And so your life can either be one that has lived with the abundant blessing of God on it, 
or it experiences the judgment of God. Now, these are God's chosen people this, this, this comes to. So this is, this is for the people of God that he's saying to them that when obedience comes, then blessing comes in the midst of it. And so Zechariah, probably um, during this exile or during this uh, return, when the remnant goes back, there's about 50,000 Jewish people that leave the, 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 the city of Babylon and they go back um, to their homeland. And when that happens, Zechariah is probably pretty young. And the foundations to the temple have been constructed. Haggai calls them uh, to repentance. And then a few months in, um, Zechariah, he's grown up in this, in this return, and the Lord calls him into a prophetic ministry. And so he is a contemporary of Haggai, but his ministry goes on a lot longer than Haggai's did. <laughs> These guys, man, their names, they get kind of confusing. My Haggai, Habakkuk, um, they're all like just, whoa. And so anyway, um, so as he starts this prophecy, he does the same thing that Haggai does. And what's amazing about Zacharias is there's several things. And again, we're dealing with the rebuilding of the temple. Is that, um, first of all, his name means the Lord remembers. And so there's a theme behind the book of Zechariah. And it basically is, if the people will do their part, then God will do his part. And so a lot of times we look for God to bail us out of situations. And throughout Scripture, we can see that God um, is, is consistently laying out a charge to the people <clears throat> that there's a responsibility that falls on them. So it's not that we just get ourselves in a mess and then we ask God to bail us out and then God shows up. Now, often when we are in a mess, God will show up and he will start to work in our lives during those times. But if we want the blessing of God to fall on our lives, we have to be aware of the fact that there is an expectation that we do our part within the covenant. And so these people were walking under the covenant of the law, and um, now we're walking under the covenant of grace. Now what we, we look at this prophecy, and the first section has a lot to do with what's going on with these people right here and now. And then we get into the second half of it, which it's a, I think it's like 13 chapters, and it's going to have a lot to do with the coming of the Messiah, some of it in the first coming, and part of it will be about the second coming of Jesus that the world hasn't experienced yet. And so the prophecy contains details of Christ's life that happened 500 years before they were fulfilled. So it's pretty amazing when we start to get into that stuff. Because it's very encouraging and from, from an apologetic sense of making a defense for your faith, as you start to understand these prophecies and realize that 500 years before Jesus was even born, these things were said about him, and then Jesus arrives and the fulfillment starts to take place. And so we, when I say that, that, that it's a strong apologetic is that in order like for Jesus like Jesus had to make sure these things were said about him before he was actually even born. And that's one of the things where we can have confidence that Jesus was actually God in the flesh. And so today when we um, look at this, what I want you to know is the book encourages anyone trying to do a work for Christ in any age. And so as we as a body of believers, I mean, my challenge to you constantly is that we as a, believe, a body together corporately we're trying to do a work for the Lord, and we're trying to raise up disciples that make disciples. Um, but individually, I'm consistently challenging you 
to, to do a work for the Lord. There's an expectation that if you're going to experience the full measure and blessing of God on your life, then you have to have eyes to see, uh, that see with faith and you realize your life is a work for Christ. And so there's always this, this dual thing going on with God. There's always a physical building of something that is happening, but there's always that it's a reflection of what is taking place in the individual lives of the people. That's why we're known as, and Paul talks about us as being the temples of the Holy Spirit. So when you become a believer in Christ and you confess your sins and you confess that you believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the God-man, that He was God in the flesh and He died for your sins, then you are transformed into the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you are a building of God. Um, the, the scripture, the Greek term, I think, calls it an oikos. It is a house. And um, that uh, God is the builder of that house. I think the Greek word behind what Paul uses is architecton, um, which we get our word architect. And so God is the designer behind it, your life. And he has an expectation that your life is built up as a work of the Lord. And so when all of us um, individually are doing that, and then we come together corporately, then that forms the body of Christ. And so locally, we have a gathering here in Overland Park we call OPCC, Overland Park Community Church. And that is just a bunch of little houses of God coming together um, and, and corporately bonding as the body of Christ, the family of God, to move the kingdom forward in our local community. And so when we look at these things, man, I want you to be encouraged today that if you have your mind set on that, you have your mind set on the things of God. And as we jump into this prophecy, the first six verses is what I want to deal with first, and then we'll get into some kind of the apocalyptic language. And he says, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. And the Lord was very angry, he said, with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. Now, what he's doing is he's referring through everything that we've learned in the first nine prophets. When we were talking, we studied Amos and Hosea and all these other guys, the first nine that were before the exile. And he says, the Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now that's very important because three times the, the, the phrase the says the Lord Almighty is used. And that tells us this is really, really important, that the theme of this, this whole book is return to me and I will return to you. And so all of us have an, uh, uh, an obligation as human beings to return to God. You say, well, what about the unbeliever? They return to God. It doesn't matter who we're talking about. Everyone is an image bearer of God. Okay? And so in the return, we're returning to God who created us and acknowledging that He, in fact, is who He said He was. We're acknowledging that Jesus was God. And in that return, something happens and shifts in our lives. And so He says, return to me, declares uh, the Lord Almighty. Return to me and I'll return to you. And then he says, do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. 
But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as He is determined to do. Okay, so this is very important as we lay this out. And all that we're going to study in, the, in this book, we'll refer back to these, these opening verses. Now remember, they've been charged with rebuilding the temple. And so they've left the New York City of their day. They've gone back to this, the promised land the, the, to where the nation of Israel and, and all the tribes existed. It was in its former glory that David and Solomon built it up into all of this glory. But now it has been destroyed because they disobeyed their ancestors, or their ancestors disobeyed. And so they were carried away in captivity. So 50,000 of them go back into this homeland, and they're charged with rebuilding the temple. And the foundations have been laid. And so they're in the midst of ruin. Okay, So they don't go back to the streets of Jerusalem and everything was like it was. It's like they go back and everything is trashed, like it's rubble. Everything has to be cleaned up. It's not, it's not been the way that it was when it was laid out and designed and God was blessing it and they were living under the blessing of God because he was raining down his blessing because they were walking in obedience under David's um, leadership. And so um, as this takes place and they're in this midst of ruin, they're wondering, are they safe? They don't have an army any longer. As a matter of fact, not only do they not have an army, they're learning to become a nation again because they've been captive in a foreign land and they're going back. And so if you just kind of imagine, man, if, 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 if uh, the United States fell to a, a communist country and then they made all of us who lived here, we had to leave Overland Park. And man, Overland Park is such a cool place to live. It's so nice. And you forget how nice it is until you leave and you spend a little time outside of, uh, of, of the city. And so we go away and they carry us away in captivity and they, they make us go to some, you know, God-forsaken place like Texas. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and, and, and maybe they're doing something there and they need workers there and they carry us away there. And we're there for 70 years. And so some of us are born there. Some of us um, were young when we were carried away and we're still alive there. And then they release us and they say, you can go back and you can rebuild OPCC. And so we can't wait to get back, man. And we're thinking of all of the things that we used to do. Oh, there's Starbucks around every corner. There's Starbucks every 300 feet in Overland Park, right? And, and, and we think about all of the restaurants. Amen. Papa Kino's open. Thank you, Lord. All right. And we're thinking about all these things. And then we get back. And it's just destroyed. We don't recognize anything. We come up on the church, and, and the church is completely destroyed. And God has told us, he said, man, I, I want you to rebuild. I want you to rebuild this stuff. And so they're in the midst of that kind of an environment. And they don't have an army. There's foreign nations around them, and they're worried about, what if somebody invades us? Man, we don't have any city walls any longer. So you study the book of Nehemiah. That's another one who came back, and he was charged with the rebuilding of the walls around the city. And so this is the place where they're at, and they're wondering, are they safe? Will it last? And so God tells them through the prophet Zechariah in these opening six verses, three very significant things 
um, that he wants to remind them. Remember, Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. And so the first thing he's going to do before he goes into all of this apocalyptic, um, these visions, is he's going to remind them. And the first thing is return to me and I'll return to you. That's the first thing he wants them to understand. This is a call for repentance before reconstruction. Now, what's cool to me is that we're, you know, we're in this, this building phase um, with, with what we're trying to do with the outside of the building. And it's, it's pretty fun, man. Like We've started to get a little bit more movement here in the last week or so. And there's been several different um, general contractors that we've been interviewing and talking to. And man, they are enthused. They see the design and people are blown away. And they want to be a part of it. And I, I met a guy here Friday, um, one of the guys from one of the companies, an electrician. And, and the guy, man, he was like, he said, man, I, I opened the plans. And, and he said, I, I thought, man, this is really cool. And I was flipping through it. He said, but when I got to the nighttime photo, I was like, oh, my gosh, this thing is amazing. And I was excited listening to him, man. I was like, man, this guy is fired up about our project. And so, so we're fired up about that project, too, and seeing it come to a reality. And here's what I want you to hear. God is fired up about that, okay? Like the Lord looks down at OPCC, and he sees where we were, um, you know, when I moved up here in 2011, just dying and dying a slow death and bleeding off the money that I had. And, and now God has looked and seen that we've been faithful and we consistently have just put, kept our shoulder to the plow. And, and through a course of events, man, things have started to happen. And God is excited about that project. I <laughs> Somebody's waving. <laughs> Come on. That's a good wave time, Coy. Good job. Uh, and, so, and so God is excited about that. But God is more excited about people. Okay, And so the project, even in our instance, and even as the temple did in their day, the project really is telling a story of what God is doing in the people. And God did, he did this all, all throughout. There was always a building of something. When they crossed the Jordan to enter the promised land, the Lord stopped the flow of the Jordan River so they could enter in. And he had the priests stand out there for a while, and, and he had 12 different members of each of the tribes go out to the river, take out a rock, bring it out to the side of the bank, and build a memorial so that every time you see it, you remember that I was with you. And so God, he, he's saying to the people that sometimes these things that, that, I, that I, I like to look upon that you build, they're just a reflection and, and a memorial stone of what you have done or what I have done in your life as you walked in faith and believed me. Okay, so, so that's, that's the important thing is that, that um, he calls them to repentance before reconstruction. And so God is more concerned about his people than he is any of his buildings. And so what good does it do to build buildings if lives aren't being built inside the buildings? Okay, it's no different than any other building. Um, but, but when lives are being built inside the buildings and they're a reflection of the stories of the, of, of the transformation that's taking place in people, that is a good thing. And so what, what do we want to take away from this and being reminded first? He says, return to me and I'll return to you. It's never, okay, it is never rebuild, then repent. It is always repent and then rebuild. Okay, so sometimes 
Sometimes in our lives when we start to go, man, I'm, I'm looking around me. God's got some people around me. And maybe you, you don't understand what it means to follow Jesus. But you start looking around you and you're like, man, I got some people around me that they clearly live differently from me. And they take this following Jesus thing very seriously. And so you, you're like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start acting like they do. And I'm going to get my life together. And I'm going to start watching how I treat people. And I'm going to start watching um, what I do and how I interact with others and, and the things that I say. And I, I'm going to be careful. I'm going to, I'm going to reinvent myself. Well, you're trying to reconstruct your life. And it's always repentance before reconstruction. It'll never stand and you'll never be able to rebuild anything in your life that will withstand anything that comes against you and challenges you unless you learn the art of repentance. And so first it is repent that you are a sinner. Confess to the Lord that you are a sinner and stand in need of His grace. Receive um, forgiveness and then start reconstructing your life because now your life is built on the foundation of Christ. So that's very important, and he wants them to understand that, is to return to me and I'll return to you. And then he tells them, learn from your past. He says in verse 4, do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaim. So he's referring back to this time where all the warnings were coming, and he's saying learn from your past. And what is the past that they should be learning from? Is that God told them that he was going to judge them because of their sin and rebellion. And so what he's saying to us is to learn from our past. And, and, and we need to understand that our history teaches us that God judges our sin. Okay, so I've been walking with the Lord for a long time now. Um, and I have, I have less life ahead of me than I do behind me. That stinks, but it's true, okay? And so, but I look at my life and I can see as I look over the past 50 years that it is very clear that God judged sin in my life. Like I can see that. And so he wants me to remember that. God judges sin and rebellion in our lives. And we are to learn from that. Now, what is very important about our past is that we learn from it. But what is unhealthy is if we let it haunt us. You can look back at your past and you can see where you disappointed God and you even disappointed yourself. But don't let that haunt you. Just let it um, uh, encourage you and learn from it so that you are motivated as you look at, out at the life that is ahead of you to be careful not to sin against and rebel against God. And it's kind of a thing that helps us to stay in check. So he says, learn from your past. And then the third thing he shows them, he says in verse 5, where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Here's the third thing. My word lives and is forever. And so what is he saying? The preachers died. The people who heard the preachers died. But the word of God is still alive. And the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is alive and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to separate bone and marrow from, from the, it's, it's able to separate basically what he is saying is the physical from the spiritual. And so the word of God is, is forever. And so here's the thing, man. There were people preaching messages like I've been preaching right now 50 years ago that are dead. There were people sitting in churches like you are right now 50 years ago that are dead. 
But the word of God is still coming out. And the word of God has been coming out since God started to speak a word and created the first man and woman. And the word of God will continue to come out until God comes back and, tells, and says that this is the end and time is no more. And Jesus even said that about the word himself. And so these people, as we look at them, um, are learning as they had these questions and they're asking, will God be with us? Um, um, look at all of this stuff that's in ruins around us. And then what happens as they're asking these questions, God starts to answer the questions. Now, so I, I want to take time again, <laughs> return to the Lord, because what we're going to start to unfold going forward is the blessing of God. We're going to see the blessing of God over and over and the promises of God in the book of Zechariah. But they're not for everyone. Everybody doesn't get to claim what we're, just, what we're about to learn about. Only the people who have returned to the Lord get to claim the promises of God. And so he starts with return to the Lord. And then he says, learn from your past and understand the word lives forever. And then on the very same night, he has a series of eight visions. This is, this is fun stuff. Boy, this is good stuff. Sounds like a movie. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat and the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edo. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. And I asked, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have, ang have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord, he spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, and I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. And so he first of all gives him this vision of the sky, man, in this ravine, down in these myrtle trees around him. And he's, he's on a, a red horse and he begins to ask this angel who's a messenger who's trying to help him interpret the vision. And he's awake while this is happening. Sometimes the prophets would have dreams and sometimes they would have visions. And the difference between a dream and a vision was is that a vision was more of a trance-like trance, uh, state and there would be an interpreter who would explain 
the vision to them. This is the same thing that happens to John the Revelator on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation. And so he's being interpreted, and, and as this interpretation is coming forth, and he says, what does this mean? The angel that's an interpreter says, I'll tell you what it means. And then all of a sudden, the guy who's in the midst of the myrtle trees on the red horse explains it, and he takes over. So we'll see who that guy is here in a, in a minute, but I think you know. And then he goes on. He has another vision. And so following this vision, and we're only going to deal with these two visions today, he says, um, Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. And I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these? And he answered me, These are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I asked, What are these coming to do? And he answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah and that no one could raise their head, but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who's, who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. Okay, so what in the world is going on down in the midst of the myrtle trees, right? Well, let me tell you. The man among the myrtles is the Lord himself. It's Jesus in the Old Testament. You say, how do we know that? Because there are several times in the Old Testament that this, this phrase, the angel of the Lord, is depicted and it always um, is wrapped in divinity. The first time we see it is uh, with uh, Abraham. He's visited by a couple of, of men, it says, but then it starts to talk about them being the angel of the Lord. And he tells him that Sarah is going to be with child, okay? And that is a depiction of um, a, a, a the, theophany, where God takes on the form of man and he's interacting with another man. Another time we see it is um, at the event with Hagar. Hagar is sent away by Sarah and she's in a, a, a place of desperation and she doesn't know what to do and she prays and she thinks her and Ishmael are going to die and, and God shows up and we see the angel of the Lord saying, no, I'm going to make him into a great nation too. Another time that we see it, and there are more, and this is the last one I'll give you an illustration, is Joshua um, is uh, uh, about to enter into the promised land, and he um, goes for a walk at night, and as he goes for a walk, he encounters an angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord has a, a sword drawn, and he encounters him, and it is, it is God or Jesus showing up in the Old Testament once again. And so this man among the myrtle trees is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and so we, we see that he's down in a ravine. Oh, this is so encouraging. He's down in a ditch, man. And, and what is he saying? Well, down there in the ditch is all of these myrtle trees. And so the myrtle tree was an evergreen tree, sort of like a Christmas tree. The largest it would grow would be eight feet tall. It would have these star-like flowers that were produced in it that would be white. And when those star-like flowers were crushed, they would put off a fragrant odor. And so what, what is being said here is when Jesus, through the prophet Zechariah, tells the people, like, remember this, return to me and I'll return to you. And they're in the midst of all of this mess and everything is destroyed around them and they're wondering what is going to happen. Can we trust the leaders who are in place right now? Then God is saying to them through this vision, you are the myrtle trees. You are a lowly nation. You're not like the rich, um, um, uh, amazing uh, cedars of Lebanon. You're not like the majestic oaks that grow there. You are a myrtle tree. And you're down in a ditch. And you're in a lowly position. But guess what? I'm right there in the midst with you. 
And so if you ever find yourself where you feel like, man, I'm down in a ditch, where is God at? God delights to get down in the midst of the ravine with his people when, when they feel like nothing is going right and he starts to do a work in the midst of that situation. And so that is the vision, is they're asking, is God going to be with us? And, 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 and Zechariah has this vision of this man on the red horse with all these other angels about him that have traveled to the north, the south, the east, and the west, and they've come back to report, all is at peace. And he's saying to the nation of Israel, you're gonna be fine as you rebuild this temple. You just proceed forward with what I've asked you to do. I'm going to take care of you. Nothing is going to come against you as long as you return to me. I'll return to you and I will be in the midst uh, of you in that place. And so the Lord is among us and we have um, all of this stuff going on. And he says, this is so cool. It says that he speaks to them and it says in verse 13, if you're taking notes, so the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. A lot of times the devil himself will make us think that if we start to get serious with God, that God is acting like sort of a cosmic principle or policeman, if you will. And as we bring our sin to him, he's going to be like, yeah, I know, bro, you really are screwed up. And I wish you would do a whole lot better job. And so we're afraid of God. We're afraid to be really honest and vulnerable with God. But what we see is that when we find ourselves in the midst of the ditch and that God comes to hang out in the midst of the myrtle trees and we see ourselves as a myrtle tree uh, as well, that God begins to speak kind and comforting words to us because as even Sean was alluding to in, during the worship, as he understands us and he wants us to turn to him and he moves in the midst of those situations. And so then we go on and in as he tells them that he uh, speaks comforting uh, words to the returnees, so those who return hear the comforting words of Christ. He also says that he is jealous for us. Um, he's jealous for the, uh, Jerusalem. I'm very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And he says, I, again, he says, I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And then we drop down into verse 17, and he says, my towns will again, what? Overflow with prosperity. And so what is all of this when we, we begin to look at it and put together? Well, we, we have to understand what is going on in the midst of all of this. And I'm going I'm to make, I, wa I want you to see the imagery first. Because now he goes from, I'm in the midst of all you're struggling through right now. I'm right down in there with you. Then he says, there uh, are these four horns. Now, horns are always a symbol of power in the Bible. How do we know that? Because this was a, these people were like farmers, okay? It was a different uh, um, um, time than what we live in, and animals with horns were always um, recognized as um, to be feared. There was even laws that uh, said that if your ox gores someone to death, you have to pay a penalty. And so there was uh, the, the, the horn um, indicated a power. And so these horns represented other nations that were used actually to bring consequences on the judgment of God on the people of God. And so all of these horns represent um, people who are coming against the chosen people of God. And then there are the craftsmen. Now, what are the craftsmen? Well, the craftsmen were raised up to defeat the horns. Now, the NIV uses craftsmen. Some versions use carpenters. Um, it, this, it's kind of a generic term in the Hebrew word. And, and in this case, I, I think the, the best application is to interpret them as smiths, like blacksmiths. And so as we look through history, what has happened is, um, is that God always, there's always somebody coming up against the chosen people of God. 
And so we see that in Israel's history. But as they return to him, so if they don't return to him, then he will use these people that come against them to bring, back to, or to bring down his judgment upon them. But as they repent and return to him, then God will raise up craftsmen. And so the craftsmen are other powers that God uses, and he will use those craftsmen to destroy the powers that are coming against them. And so in, in this case, when we look in the uh, form of, of Christianity, throughout the history of the church, I mean, Christianity, like it, it's, it's starting to push forward. And even in its infancy, as the church comes out of the ground, all of the Jewish leaders, even the nation of Israel, had people that were uh, being rebellious and, 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 and sinning against God. They were the ones responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. And so then you have all of these other Jewish people who were saved by Christ, and they're following the Lord. And so when Whenever Jesus rises from the dead, they try to squash Christianity. And so they are, are very trained and, and, and amazing uh, men of God who have learned the Hebrew, who have memorized Scripture. They know the Old Testament front and back. And you have 12 guys who grew up being fishermen and tax collectors and so on and so forth, but they're empowered with the Spirit of God. And it probably felt to them like, man, like we're doing the best we can, but those guys, are so, they, they seem like they're so much smarter than us. What are we going to do? and they were coming against the church and trying to stop it. And what did God do? God raised up a craftsman and he took one of them by the name of Saul and turned him into Paul and he became the greatest theologian the church has ever seen. A craftsman was raised up. We could look throughout church history and we see there are times where movements were come that it looked like the church was going to get squashed and God would, would raise up an Augustine or God would raise up an Athanasius and they were craftsmen that God would build a dam and he would shut down the horn and the church would continue to move forward. And say, wow, man, that's pretty cool. God is promising to them that there are people that are going to come against you, but you need not worry. I'm always going to raise up craftsmen to protect you. And so what does that mean for us? Well, I think it becomes very interesting when we think of these guys um, uh, as, as blacksmiths that would use a hammer and an anvil to smash and shape things. We go to Jeremiah chapter 23, 29, who is a, um, a major prophet. And it says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces. We turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, which was written by the Apostle Paul, who was one of the craftsmen that God raised up. And what does he say to us? The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so like a hammer on an anvil, we use the word, man, and we smash things that are trying to come against the things of God. That's why we are so committed to discipleship at this church. It's because we realize that the only way for uh, the, the kingdom of God to truly advance and come against the horns that are coming against the kingdom of God is for people to be skilled craftsmen with the word of God and they can smash the speculations and the weird thoughts that come into your head and they can crush that stuff on the, ham, uh, the anvil of God's truth using the hammer of the word and doing away with it in your life. That's what it means to be a disciple. A disciple doesn't go around going, well, I know that the word says some of these things, but I really don't want to submit to that. The disciple goes, man, if that's what the word says, let me lay this speculation in my life out right here and smash that thing and do away with it. 
And then freedom starts rolling out of your life as the truth of God penetrates your heart and you're destroying the horns that are coming against you and you have a vision of Jesus returning because he will come again just like he told these people that never thought it would happen. It happened and it's, it's recorded in history. We can study it. You don't even need to read the Bible. This is what happened to the nation of Israel. Now, now again, if you just need to like think and go, man, is this stuff really true? Has there ever been a nation that is as insignificant in the amount of land that it holds and the power that it's had that has lasted as long as the nation of Israel? Like it's been there. Why is it still there? It even was gone for a long time. And in 1948, what happened? A bunch of Jewish people moved back and reestablished the nation of Israel. And so even in this day and time, when things like happen and, and the president says, I'm going to make the, the United States embassy right here in, in Israel's capital, that is a huge deal. It is a big deal. And it's bigger than America. It's bigger than any, like it is, it is God taking care of his people as he always said he would take care of his people. And so there will always be horns that come against us. There will always be spiritual forces of wickedness in high places that are coming against us and trying to discourage us and trying to get us to give up on things, trying to get us to get distracted by the truth of God that is really wanting to move in our lives. And so what we have to do is we have to understand that we are called to be a craftsman in the kingdom of God. And that brings us to the big idea. To return is to learn to use the word like a hammer and function from the overflow. What happens? It says, man, I once again will be in their midst and, and my city will overflow with prosperity. And what does Jesus teach us in the New Testament? He says, man, like you, the way that I want you to function it's not by trying to do everything yourself, but by believing that if you abide in me, what does that mean? The word abide comes from the Greek word meno. It means to hang out with, tarry, spend time with. How do you spend time with Jesus? The only way to spend time with someone is to know their words. And his word is here in front of us as we unpack the Bible and we become familiar with it. And as we become familiar with it, we will produce fruit because we will start to use it like a hammer to smash the things that are false in our lives. And so that's, that's what we're called to do. And so, wow, man, that's, that's strong. Well, it gets better, bro. Wave your hand if you'd like to read a little revelation this morning. Yeah. See if this sounds familiar. Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What's he saying? He said, I'm, I'm suffering because I wouldn't quit using the word like a hammer. I couldn't quit talking about Jesus. So they put me in prison on this island. And on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. 
His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And there he is, he's having this vision, man. And he said, when I saw him, I saw I fell at his feet as though dead, and he placed his right hand on me and said, What's going on here, man? It's the man among the myrtles. They're just lampstands now. And and and, and the guy is terrified. And what does he do? He puts his hand on him. And what was in his hand? It said something like shining stars. It was the light of the truth of the gospel. It was the messenger's. And he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, when it says angels, these are messengers, the sent ones. Like these, these are the pastors of the churches. And the other, the, 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 what you see is the lampstands is the churches. The number seven is always a number of perfection in apocalyptic literature. That's why the mark of the beast is identified as 666, because it falls one short of seven. And so he's saying, look, man. Here is the church and the pastoral ministry of the church in my right hand. And all of the lampstands are are the the messengers of the church in my right hand. And all of the lampstands are the church himself. Who is that? It's us. It's us. It's the people of God. And what he's saying to us, I am with you in the midst of every horn that is raised up against you. And this sword you see in my mouth that is flaming and spinning is the sharp double-edged sword that I use the writer of Hebrews to tell you about that is sharp and active. It is the word of God and it will penetrate your soul and it will shape up your life. And that's why I've called you in John chapter 15 to abide in me and you will bear fruit. Still don't have time to read the Word? If you don't have time to read the Word, it's because you are sinful and rebellious and you don't give a crap. It's not because you're busy. It's because you don't care and you don't really believe that it's like a hammer that will destroy the speculations in your life. And when you start living like that, then we won't have any problem dealing with the physical structures around this place because the people of God will start moving in momentum and the divine glory of God will fall on this place and we will shape our community like a New Testament church is supposed to shape it. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so today, as we take communion, Maybe the conversation between you and Jesus is, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready to follow you and surrender to you as a disciple of yours. I'm tired of playing games. 
I'm tired of being distracted. And I'm, as I'm looking at this, I see that these, these horns are raised up against me, and I need to be a craftsman that knows how to use the hammer and destroy the junk that is trying to steal from me so that the abundant life will, will flow in me. And out of the overflow, disciples will be made. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.